Hi everyone, this is Josiah Sinanin and I'm so excited to be introducing another season of Anticulture. It seemed to come so fast, but here we are. With all that 2020 brought with it, I was pretty unsure about doing another season, but I decided to commit because I love it. And truthfully, I also believe that these discussions are important and critical. And especially in a year like we've had, I wanted to keep the conversation going. This is season four, and I'm so looking forward to all that's in store for you. In true 2020 style, we're going to be hearing from a range of opinions, perspectives, and thoughts. As always, I don't always agree with my guests, but my goal is that you won't realize that. My job is to present the power of the human story to you and give you the opportunity to draw your own conclusions. People's assumptions, and I think this is where, you know, I mentioned like the ultra-woke is that the irony of it being like that horseshoe theory of racist assumptions? It's like, oh, okay, well, you must, you must, you know, you ha- you're half indigenous. Uh, clearly, you must be let, like lean heavily into that BIPOC identity. Or you can have a conversation with me. Talk to me about who I am. I'm an individual, and I think that's the thing. We're going to be exploring some questions that might seem a bit contrary to each other. For example. Can a Republican be pro-choice? Can an Indigenous person praise colonialism? Where does racism come from? And what really defines you? If you're new to the show, anti-culture is all about getting to the truth about what makes people tick. We often put people in boxes and assume that their thought patterns line up in a distinct way. But if we don't take the time to hear their stories, we lose out on the chance to remove ourselves from our bias. If there's one thing I've learned over the past three seasons, it's that cultural identity is more about one's lived experience and less about background or affiliation. So I invite you to lean in, listen carefully, and experience life through someone else's shoes this season. We're kicking off the new season with a special guest, someone I'm so excited about interviewing. You're going to be meeting Gavin John, a Métis conflict photojournalist who has spent time in some of the most intense environments documenting the human experience, including the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, also known as CHOP or CHAZ, and conflict zones in northern Iraq during the heights of ISIS action. Gavin has seen a lot that some of us will never have access to, but he also treads a fascinating line when it comes to his own cultural identity. You're not going to want to miss this. Before we dive in, I wanted to let you know that Anticulture is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. You can find our whole roster alongside some other great locally curated shows at albertapodcastnetwork.com. This episode of Anticulture is also brought to you by Calgary Foundation. Whether it's funding anti-racism programs, addiction recovery, or food hampers for the hungry, for 65 years, the Calgary Foundation has proudly supported the charitable community to address some of Calgary's biggest challenges. Now, during this period of unprecedented urgent needs, Calgary Foundation renewed its commitment to building a healthy, vibrant, giving, caring, and resilient community. If you're a registered charity looking for a grant, a professional advisor creating a giving plan for your client, or a donor wanting to give back to community, discover a wealth of resources at calgaryfoundation.org and learn more about their work through Calgary Foundation's Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Today, I also want to tell you about ATB's new podcast, The Future Of. Join Todd Hirsch, ATB's Vice President and Chief Economist, as he connects with special guests who offer unique and useful perspectives about the future. Explore how our economy and communities can not only brace for change, 
but embrace the opportunity it creates. From the future of women in business to changing nature of work itself, the future of helps us understand what's coming and what we need to do today to get the tomorrow we want. Featuring two episodes each month plus bonus episodes, the future of includes interviews with top community and business leaders from Alberta and around the world. Subscribe to the future of in the Apple Store, Google Play, Spotify, and everywhere podcasts are found. And connect to ask your questions about the future by emailing thefutureof at atb.com. And now, without any more waiting, let's dive in with our special guest this week, Gavin John. My name is Gavin John. I'm a Métis man, Cree Métis, coming from my mom's side. So my mom's Cree and my dad's British. So if anything, I like, I am Canada in a person. Yeah. So uh, ultimately. Yeah, I guess I would. But if we're talking race and if we're talking about that, then yeah, I guess that's it. I'm white enough to pass off as white, but I'm brownish enough to pass off as not quite white. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah. It, uh, it's quite advantageous, I find. It's uh, yeah, kind of being in, the same thing. Being in that kind of weird middle, like, what are you? I'm like, yeah, yeah it's kind of the mystique of me. Yeah, so. the racial ambiguity. It's going to be a uh, a good place to stand in the future, I think. Yeah, yeah <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting. I remember you telling me about how basically – the lineage of your family because you're adopted currently and the parents that you just referenced are those your birth parents or your adopted parents adopted parents okay yeah. so what's your blood parents lineage and do you know about that i i roughly know they're they're also indigenous yeah because obviously you know you can't really adopt my <laughs> yeah. you know you don't really get that from uh skin color but anything beyond indigenous is you know i i have a twin brother um, and we kind of kept intentionally vague because when it came when it comes to identity, like my mom and dad are my mom and dad. Like yeah. that's a, that's a very you know non negotiable part of my identity. Totally. Um, so it's like and 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 I always grew up knowing that. I always knew I was adopted and always kind of yeah that was a thing. But it was never a point of which where I'm like oh my gosh you know I I'm not right. genetically related to my parents. Right. Actually, there's a I, I think I told you this too. They uh, whatever grade I was in, but. You know when they teach you genetics? What's that square called? The Punnett square? Oh, the, yeah. Punnett square. Yeah. Punnett square. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, I, I, whatever, like grade eight or something like that. And I was really pumped because I, I, it was something that clicked in for me. And I remember coming home and being like, all right, so I get it now. So, you, mom, you've got brown eyes and brown hair and dad's got this and I'm drawing it all out in the chromosomes and all this. Yeah. And I'm like, and that's why I have dark brown eyes and black hair. And the mom was like, you're adopted. <laughs> right. You're like, but it still makes sense. And it's such a non, uh, maybe that's not a good thing to say on a podcast, but I don't find it interesting at all. Like it's just something yeah. more interesting to other people. Because right. like, well, what, like, what, what are you? And what about your birth mom and your biological, what do you call your biological? Like it's all those questions that I never, I never myself really cared too much about. Cared. Well, not yeah. yeah, I cared, but like they're... You know, you weren't intrigued by it. No, because it's just a matter of fact of my life. Like, it's, you know, Josiah, like, when did you get hair? When did you start noticing you get hair? (laughs) Like, people would be like, uh, right. I've always had it. It does raise a lot of questions, too, because I think, and we'll get into a lot of this later, kind of where your life has taken you and what kind of interests you developed and even just how you view culture itself um, after your experiences. But, one thing I do want to bring up before we move on too much from that is you did tell me a story about how basically in your lineage, there was like a Métis status that happened that yeah. shouldn't have happened. Well, well is that right? No, it's it's a status Indian 
So there's right. there's in um, Aboriginal like Indian, then Métis and right. Inuit. It, it's something actually. It's it's something that I'm in the process of finding out currently today. It's really okay. new in my uh, in my life right now, and actually probably like two three months that by. So let's have a little Canada history lesson, yes, as, as told by us. Gavin John. Yes, <laughs> I, I'll do a disclaimer. Some of this may be completely incorrect, but this is how I understand it. Yeah, um, that's great. So I mentioned that my mom's lineage is Cree, and specifically Manitoba Cree. Okay. And back in the day, when the Canadian government was shittier than it is today, especially to uh, to Indians, and what they would do was citizenship was. And wasn't just with the uh, indigenous, but with typically a lot of people, citizenship came with ownership, land ownership. Right. So when the British came in and were like, hey, there's things called countries and ownerships and states and state system and all that kind of stuff, really new concepts to the indigenous here. So how I understand it is that my great, great grandfather was given like to be a part of a, like the, a vassal of the crown, you had to be given like, I own this part of land. So it's called scrip, S-C-R-I-P. And that basically said that like great grandpa McKay had uh, land in right. Manitoba. And a weird concept for in, in indigenous people to be like, what do you mean this piece of paper says I own a part of land? That, right. That's weird. But this is where the Canadian government was sneaky and malicious. Because what they did was they knew that they just couldn't take all the land mm-hmm. forcibly. Um, so there's things like the treaties and that's a whole other other story. And there's reserves yeah. and that's a whole other story. But right. when it came to individuals, the script became really important because if an individual had that script, that was the ownership of the land. So what the Canadian government did, um, how I understand to my, to my great-great-grandfather, said, hey, great-great-grandfather McKay, it's a fancy bit of paper you got there. Would you like some tools? How about, would you, you know, look at this fancy box of tools. Right. You know, we got a lathe and we got like, ooh, look at this hammer. Isn't this pretty cool? And here's $200. And back then, like 200 bucks back in like, when would that have been like 1890-ish? Yeah, like, like that's a, early. that's bank. Yeah, totally. So naturally, and, and if I was in his shoes too, I would have been like, fuck yeah, take this. Give me that coin and that sweet, sweet lathe. Yeah. I'm going to lathe <laughs> the shit out of some wood here. And in exchange for his script. So- right. Which was tied to his Indian status. Which was tied to his ownership in land. Right. So now he didn't own land and he didn't wasn't connected to that land. Right. So when it came about determining status, it was like, well, do you own, do you own your ancestral land? And he's like, well, mm. no, you, you gave me these tools, you know, but he was like, ooh, sorry about that. You don't actually qualify for, for status, cause, but you, wow. got, you got that sweet lathe though, man. I, this is kind of where my understanding gets a bit murky is because from that point to my grandpa- they were kind of in this, I think, like this ambiguous territory. Something I'm still trying to f- um, find out about my grandpa. But what I do know is that whatever status he had and when World War II broke up, he wanted to volunteer to fight for his country. Mm-hmm. And that involved becoming a citizen of Canada. Right. And that involved renouncing all indigenous ties. So wow. because he wanted to volunteer to fight for his country, his country took away his, his status. Wow. So then when it comes to my mom and to me, we no longer have the, um, and it's, oh man, my, my brother would know this so much. I have a, my twin brother. He's way more learned when it comes to yeah. indigenous history. But how it is, is that there's generational, like you can only be Indian if you have right. a certain, like, certain amount of generations. Right. 
And where we're at, like where I'm at right now is according to the government and according to even, even a lot of the indigenous groups and Indian Affairs Canada and all that, I don't qualify for indigenous status because of all the things that have happened before. So like my grandpa volunteering mm-hmm. for World War II, my great grandpa giving up his script and all these kind of things that gets to me and I'm like, oh, can I be Indian? And they're like, no, <laughs> but you can be Métis. So this is, okay. and then it's weird because then all of a sudden Métis is now this is really separate identity outside of the indigenous and the, I guess you would call them like British heritage, uh, European right. heritage. So they're that, that in between ground, which mm-hmm. It, there's a there's a saying we're not white enough to be white and we're not Indian enough to be Indian. So right. we sit in this weird weird zone, and it, it's neat because at what point in time then begs the question: At what point in time does being denied an identity become its own identity? Mm-hmm. Because clearly being denied Indian status and clearly being denied European status, that identity became very solidified. And especially like the Real Rebellion and like totally the, like the Métis Rebellion, like that's. What, I think closest we ever got to a civil yeah. war in Canada. So, yeah. Well, I always thought it was interesting growing up when I first learned about the Métis people too that it's almost that it is considered a completely separate people group. And I guess it's because there is a bit of shared history. But I also thought that was such a weird concept coming from a mixed race family because I'm like, I don't feel like I'm my own race all of a sudden because I am mixed, which is such a strange concept. And I don't. It, I think it's very unique to Canada that we have something like that. Yeah, because I and actually that's a good point because I, I don't think that there's a Métis in, in America. Yeah. Um, I don't think that there's a Métis in places somewhere where, like New Zealand, which, you know, I would say is a is a good example of, you know, today current affairs between the Indigenous mm-hmm. and, you know, the, the British stock, I guess. Right. It's a fairly good working cultural relationship. Yeah. But there still isn't that in-between ground. You're either Maori or you're not. You're either yeah. – European heritage or you're not. But in Canada, it's this, you know, Métis, which it's an odd kind of, yeah, it's an odd place to be. Um, yeah. Obviously that I have a face made for radio. So it's like, I have these, like, I'm, I'm quite olive and handsome, really handsome. <laughs> so handsome. I think that's a Métis trait, extra handsome. I won't use your photo at, in any of the promo. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be a, no, you'll be a uh, mystery man. Uh, yeah. yeah. He might not even be Métis people. Yeah, just imagine like a really, really strong jawline. You know, good cheekbones. Yeah, so it's that 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 cultural identity is is neat. Yeah. But then all of a sudden, then it's like how I interpret it too. It's I'm proud of my Cree heritage and I'm proud of my British heritage. Like there's, right. and I I think that puts me in a I don't want yeah. to say a weird place, but shocker, it's the Métis place in Canada. Is that mm-hmm. you know I have pride in both my lineages. Like I, I I look at you know kind of British culture and my. British side of my family, really proud of that. And then look at my Cree side, really proud of that. And yeah, yeah. especially in today's climate, is there's there's definitely kind of, oh, you should really lean into being Cree. Oh, be Cree. I'm like, yeah, of course I'll I'll be proud of that, but that's half of me. You know, I'm not gonna just say I'm Cree because I'm not. I, right. I'm I'm a Metis. And the other important half of my my identity is British. Right. So and I, I think this is something I don't have a lot of insight into, but I'm curious about the politics between indigenous groups. So I guess the sense of like, how do Inuit people look at Métis people? How do First Nations people look at Inuit and Métis? And what's the what's the relationship there? Have you experienced much of that? I can say no. Me personally, I, I do know people close to me that have experienced that interaction and it's it's not good. Because like I said, that, that joke earlier, the not white enough to be white not Indian enough to be Indian. And there's a really concerning 
their anecdotes, obviously, but uh, that because we're not Indian enough to be status, then that makes us less than than Indians. But we're not quite enough, you know, European. So it's but it also comes from those groups as well. So that that idea of like, oh, they're Métis, they're not really Indians. They're yeah, not. They like, don't well, really get it. Yeah. Yeah. They, they. You know, you can't really like Mean Girls. You can't sit with us. Right. Like that. And it's it's so weird because you know we especially in a God reconciliation. That's a that's a whole can of worms. But you know we we should be looking at you know, our history and being like, okay, hey, there's some really shitty things that, that happened and, you know, we're moving forward and, you know, we can acknowledge it, but then at some point in time, it has to come into action mm-hmm. and action comes from everybody. And mm-hmm. this is where, you know, why are we arguing, you know, are Métis really indigenous? Why, why is that, why is that important? You know, why, like that frustrates me like, yeah. and because it's, it's the race to the bottom. And right. rather than bringing the floor up, it's, right. you know, we're, we're trying to find that pecking order within pecking orders within a structure of a country that was built on racial hierarchies. It's a weird thing to, you know, if you're, if you're ultra woke and being like, oh, you got to really push that race card. I'm like, like, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with that. Yeah. Because what, what makes you uncomfortable about that? Well, it's just kind of the outdated system that you feel like you're playing into. No, I, I think it's it's more how I think when people say you know you're you're indigenous, I'm like, yeah, so what? Right. Okay. You know, I'm yeah, I'm also half British. I'm, I'm right. half Cree. I'm like, what are you like? Are we gonna start like <laughs> doing twenty five and me or whatever that that DNA yeah. thing is like? Dead? Like, but at what point? There's a fine line that I think that we're all really missing, especially today. Where you can celebrate yourself as an individual, you can celebrate yourself as part of a group, mm-hmm. and those shouldn't be exclusive. No. So, yeah, I think people have the absolute right to celebrate saying, you know, I love being Canadian. I I love it. Like I love if I'm a first generation Canadian, or I've been here from the beginning, or I'm sixth generation, like thick European stock Canadian. I think there's something pr- you can be proud about that. Yeah, you know, and I. I, I like that. And I want people to celebrate who they are as individuals. And this, that's why when it comes to like identities that matter most to me, it's being an individual. I yeah, think that when it comes so down good. to it, that the most unique minority, the, the smallest minority possible in the world is the individual. Mm-hmm. And I think we're losing that because we're we're trying to say like, okay, Gavin, you're, you're – you know, Métis, which means half of you is Cree, which, oh, that's, that's an indigenous group. So you now identify as BIPOC. And I'm like, oh, right. <laughs> like, sure. But do I have to? Like, I, <laughs> like, that's a, yeah, but these are all personal choices. Absolutely. And I think it's so interesting. Like, that's kind of the goal with my show too, is like to show that true culture and cultural identity is an individual thing at, at its, at its point. Cause Every time you put someone in a box or a category, you're limiting what their experience actually is. So, for example, you feel equally proud to be British as you do Indigenous. And I think a lot of people, if yeah, if I could guess, are probably hoping that you'll lean more into your Indigenous side oh, yeah. and that you shouldn't be proud of your British side. And yeah. it, I find that so funny because the people who are saying that, and again, I'm guessing... I imagine that they are people that have experienced neither of those things. It's people's expectations. And this is why I really, you know, in, in public setting, things that I'm, I'm uncomfortable and I'm still, God, I'm, I'm a 
35 year old grown ass man, I still haven't figured this out where, how do I express my identity in a way that doesn't automatically put me in boxes that yeah. I don't really want to feel the justification to defend. I want to defend myself as an individual. And, right. and I, that's so good. And, and people want to like, and you mentioned it about people expect me to lean one way or the other. I'm like, you know, and, and people's assumptions. And I think this is where, you know, I mentioned like the ultra woke is that it's the irony of it being like that horseshoe theory of, of racist assumptions. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, well, you must, you must, you know, you ha- you're half indigenous. Uh, clearly, you must be le- like lean heavily into that BIPOC identity. Right. Or you can have a conversation with me. Talk to me about who I am. Exactly. I'm an individual. And I think that's the thing. And but God, my, I have a twin. I have a twin brother. Like I shared the womb with a guy. Yeah. And him and I, and <laughs> how we identify and how we play out our identities are, are two very separate things. And I'm, I'm so proud of my brother. I'm that's super amazing. proud of my brother. Yeah. And we are two very different people. So it's one of those things that, you know, we were raised by the same parent, came from the same womb, you know, but we, we both come to the point at which we're 35 years later, we interpret our own identity and who we are mm-hmm. completely differently. Or mm-hmm. we have some similarities, but for the most part, like we, we've carved out our own identity. And I think that's something to be celebrated. Yeah. And just like, yeah, like every single individual has that same process that they've come through and it changes like god it changes through like for years and years i i was even hesitant to talk about being metis because it's i i didn't want any like presupposition the idea of being ethnically ambiguous like was really appealing to me because i could just create whoever i like I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm not tied to a a label and when you take away those those labels that people can be a crutch on, you mm-hmm. no longer can assume what you think those people might think or what they believe. So you are forced to get to know them as individuals. Yes. So you're like, oh, you're, oh, I don't know. I'm, see the thing, like I, I struggle with even thinking of like a, a hypothetical hyperbolic <laughs> example of like, hello, fellow Indian man. Yeah. You know, it is I. Yeah. You know, well, also other Indian men. Like, yeah. That raises a question yeah. too. Like, do you feel an affinity towards indigenous people when you encounter each other? Or do you feel like you're an outsider in that as well? Mm, no, I neither feel an outsider nor some kinship that is greater than other kinship with other strangers. Like okay. yourself, yeah. I, you know, getting to know you as a person. Mm-hmm. I think there's that process of, you know, I, I really try hard to look at people as individuals and be like, Hey, what are, what are you all about? And that's why like, I love being a journalist. It's that, yeah. you know, your job is to, to figure out like, well, who are you are as a person? Like, I, I don't want to like screw the labels, screw the, all the kind of stuff. Like, yeah. Who are you as a person? Like, let's talk about that. Let's find that out. But at the same time too, I, I was raised in a, a really great, I had a great childhood. You know, my, my mom exposed me a lot to indigenous culture so for me, I, and positive indigenous culture, like powwows and like, I, I still like drum circles are probably, if, if anyone's listening and hasn't been into a drum circle, like such a powerful, awesome thing to hear. And as a kid so growing cool. up, so for my, my ideas of indigenous were like, oh, they're just, just like you and me, but they look a bit different, but so does everybody else. Like, you know, and yeah, they, totally. they've just got different practices. So I was, I was raised in a very like educated and and healthy environment when i was 18 and 19 i lived in india for a bit and same thing too it was that i can uh, mom and dad if you're listening um <laughs> i, I want to thank them so much for how they raised how they raised us because with that 
those tools to interpret individuals and people and, and cultures and, mm-hmm. you know, and then to go out in the world in 18 and 19, go to probably the most opposite from Canada country in the yeah. world, India. And then underst- being able to understand of like, hey, there's very different cultures, very different practices, religions, language, all this kind of stuff. It, it, it armed me to be able to process those things in a way that didn't make me retreat into my own kind of like, yes, I, I just want to have my little bubble. Yeah. So I, that's where I find the value of being exposed to other cultures, but exposed to in a way that it doesn't stereotype them in a way that doesn't allow for your own learning to happen right. and your own like understanding of those, those cultures. And it, it takes a long yeah, time. That's worded so well. I, I am curious though about your experiences and how you deal with those instances where people do kind of put you in a box or expect you to react a certain way. Like you should be mad about this. You're indigenous or, you know, you should feel this way because you're Métis. What's your, what's your response to situations like that? Maybe I just put off the perception that I'm, I'm delightfully moderate. God, moderates are so boring. <laughs> they're, they're, quote me on that. Moderates are boring. Um, but yeah, I was hoping I, for some drama here. Come on. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I like this about you and I think it's interesting to to pick at and I want you to get into that. Yeah. I When people have had those conversations with me that presuppose a stance that I haven't expressed explicitly, I often feel like, Ed, let's use your example. In my previous work, I've had people have conversations about like reconciliation. Right. I and mean, the funny thing is I've had both opinions be expressed to me about like, this is stupid or like, oh, this is finally what we've done to the indigenous is horrible and blah, blah, blah. Like I've had both come to me. Like, mm-hmm. And for both cases, it's very, you know, in, in using your words about like, oh, you should be angry about this. I'm like, as Canadians, we all should be angry about that. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And then on the flip side too, I was like, yeah, I think it's stupid that our prime minister campaigned on like, yeah, we're going to be reconciling and reconciling and did nothing. Mm-hmm. That's an embarrassment. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think it's stupid when, when people think of reconciliation, we think of inaction. So right. I, I think our government has to do a, a far better job. And what does that mean? And this is why it's very easy, oh, Trudeau, to like apologize and to make empty statements than saying like, okay, we should all be outraged as Canadians to look back at our history and how we treated an indigenous. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, yeah, absolutely. I, I hope everybody can agree with that. How we move forward is this and have, and I know we've had the, how many points are there, but the points of reconciliation, but right. there's still indigenous communities without water. That's a very easy solution. Absolutely. To fix. There's, yeah. there's still ways that we can add Jody Wilson-Raybould. My partner's reading her book right now and it's actually really neat. Right. But what she advocates for is that not only in, in a post-reconciliation Canada is that the indigenous groups themselves have to start advocating for themselves. Then all of a sudden there's there's responsibility put on those communities saying, okay, Canada is listening. We might not have the answer, but now is the time to do something. Mm. You know, we we talk about not everybody loves talking about the Indian Act, you know, but the Indian Act has is is such a contentious but essential part of how today we're running uh, our relations with the indigenous community. That's not right. to say that it's going to be how it's how we deal with them forever mm-hmm. you know but it's it gives framework for until we decide a better way to get there and she advocates for groups to themselves to be like hey do we collectivize do we say like how many nations are there in canada indigenous nations like yeah a lot there's and they're also hundreds. different they're also yeah. different so you know what does Siksika have in common with someone in like an Iroquois in Ontario? Mm-hmm. Probably very little. Exactly. So yeah. how do how do we collectively work with the 
the government and how do non-Indigenous Canadians, how do we, how do we kind of either help them along or ask for clarifications? Because that shouldn't just be a blank check to be like, do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that we, we have to have some constraints, but within reason, and it right. has to be a, a, a conversation that a nation has to have together. So this is why it frustrates me about Trudeau is that it's very easy to be like, I apologize for all the bad things that have happened. Have you felt a responsibility to advocate for some of those things strongly or what's your personal take been on it and your, or your personal action? I don't feel a strong, use the word responsibility. No, I, I don't. I, I think that my contributions to that and every other issue that I, I take interest in is to understand it more. So to be able to have someone ask me like, hey, Gavin, like what's the Indian Act? And not, by the way, please don't ask me that because I, I don't, I can't, <laughs> I can't. Like, I'll delete that question quickly. <laughs> no, I um, But like questions like that, or I think it's, it's people's job to be informed. And this is why being a, a journalist and a storyteller and somebody is so important to me because mm-hmm. that's how we learn. It's we learn through storytellers. We learn through journalists. We learn through, and those journalists have a responsibility to, you know, bring you conversations from individuals that are worth listening to or doing doing research and say, sitting down and being like, hey, you know, the government claims this, but how are we really doing that? And that's one of the big passions for me is that like Canadian foreign policy. Right. I find us, we don't deserve half of the reputation we have internationally mm. because I see the hypocrisy in it. When talking about a country that's really important to me, Iraq, that Canada has been such a hypocritical weak country when it comes to setting up for things that we claim like self-determination that's a big one we're really big on being like yeah we you can self-determine it yeah except the french people you know <laughs> <laughs> but then at the same time too it's like oh but internationally we were for yeah. self-determination except the kurds don't don't you know ooh, be, ooh. Baghdad would be very angry if we supported you guys like openly but we did yeah and I think I think we we've gotten really tied to our diplomatic reputation and that politicizes everything. So we love to say that we're the peacekeepers and that we're but doing all these things. A, that's and, such a lie. And I think yeah. too, because we we lost our we had a bid for the Security Council mm-hmm. and we lost it yes. to Norway. Yeah. Good. Like we didn't deserve it. Yeah. Um, Norway spends God, what was the percentage? Every year they have a set, it's like 5% or 4% of their GDP on foreign aid mm-hmm. every year. Like without, without, there's no fluctuation. Yeah, it's so everything. Yeah. And they actually do work. Um, Canada, we were just empty promises. Our mission to Mali, you know, what do we do there? Like it was, <laughs> it was a check, it was a check mark box. Mali totally. is a country that needs help. Yeah. Iraq is a country that needs help. Syria yeah. is a country that needs, like you can list all of these countries that need help. And when Trudeau said, and I was a cynic back then, shocker, when he was like, the world needs more Canada. Uh, fuck off. Like, <laughs> no, like you can't just say that and then send four helicopters to Mali and just be like, we're doing a yeah, thing. We're, we're helping doing something. Yeah. So it's, it's these but then it calls into question that, you know, what is our identity as Canadians? And I think that's a really important thing is that we think we perceive ourselves. And I, I really hope, and I, I don't see any evidence of this, but that us losing the seat maybe is like slap some sense into us as a foreign policy, as a, as a, as a group of politicians, as a as Canadian government. Yeah. I mean, hopefully for some people, I feel like to a lot of people, they were happy about it and, you know, but- I agree with you. And I, I want to back up a little bit too, sure, because yeah. 
obviously this is a big interest of yours and you've taken, yeah, you put a lot of emphasis into this identity as Canadians, but also international experience that you hinted at there. And I know that part of that ties into your journalism and you primarily have practiced photojournalism, if I'm right. And you've been to some crazy places and I do want to get into that. So, this is a good, this is a good connector here. And I think I do want to ask about Iraq first and how that experience came to be and what you took from it. And, and I, I want to get into some cultural stuff too, as you talk about that. No, I, I, I love, I love Iraq. I have Iraq. Is that how you say I love Iraq? Yeah. Okay. Iraq. Um, <laughs> yeah. Give it, paint us the picture. What happened yeah, there? I, I guess uh, we can back all the way up yeah. to uh, September 11th. I was in grade 11 or 10. I remembered thinking throughout all the stuff thinking about that is that the Middle East was going to be important for the rest of my life. And the idea of, of a place like Iraq, especially after 2003, the invasion, it was always in the headlines. It was always this, right. this nebulous, deserty place that the bad people were at. You know, and it was obviously I I didn't simplify it that much when I was in high school, right. but still, like I yeah. I didn't know much about it. Yeah, I, I knew I I remember as a kid uh, the first Gulf War. You probably weren't even born yet. No, <laughs> <laughs> the first Gulf War because my our parents we all watched the news every night. So as a kid growing up, we were kind of aware of what was going on in the yeah. world. So the first Gulf War is something I I was aware of, and then I knew about Saddam Hussein and. But by the time I got to high school, kind of understanding it a bit more and, you know, especially seeing something so visceral live on TV, like Mm -hmm. Mm 9-11, there's this idea of like, oh, wow, there's, there's some, there's a side of the world that I don't know anything about. Right. So, I guess that was the, the real seed in my, my life to kind of get me to Iraq and conflict had always interests me because it was something that I saw as, if not probably the most important stories out there is that if. There are things out there that people are willing to die and to kill for. So, what are those things? Like, are these are conversations that you know countries go through? And, and obviously, with the war in Iraq, that we saw how horrible that went, really makes countries rethink their own identity and rethink kind of their place in the world yeah, and absolutely. rethink the responsibilities. And and I'm still I'm still really torn on where I sit on the war in Iraq. Like, I it's very easy to say, oh, I'm against it, but I I'm not necessarily against it. Mm-hmm. I I think that there's we're now realizing, looking back, that the mid to late 90s were the golden age of democracy, liberal democracies, that looking at where we're at now, we're being like, man, we really screwed up our chance there. Yeah. And part of that is, is Saddam Hussein was a horrible man and did horrible things to a country that I find so beautiful. And I think that's, that's a travesty. And they suffered under Saddam for 30 years. And they, suffer, they, they continue to suffer today under under the Americans and now under, you know, their very corrupt governments and now with mm-hmm. Iran and not like, so it's, it's been a country that's always appealed to me to understand more about it. So it was really high in my list of places to go when I got into journalism. Uh, so I went to Satan to 2010. Okay. So 2010 to 2013. Yeah. And lucky for me, the, uh, that was right when Arab spring was starting. Oh, the first time I went to Iraq was in 2010. I uh, went just for fun with a friend from work. Nice. Um, <laughs> just went up north and like the Kurdish regions and okay, fell in yeah. love with it. Like it, and it wasn't, and that was a world like, oh, wow. Like we didn't get shot at once and everyone was really nice here. And right. like the food is pretty good and it's <laughs> nice and cheap. And oh my God, I like this place. Like, yeah. And that's the, that's the north. And then, so Iraq is roughly divided into the Kurdish north, the uh, Shia center and like the Sunni 
south. And that's right. really an oversimplification. It's a very diverse yeah. country. And then there's like Turkmen's and all the, like a lot of different minorities in there. Yeah. So once I graduated, I, that's when ISIS first popped up in 2013. So obviously when that war started, that was like, hey, okay, I'm, this, I need to, I need to go. There's responsible ways to get into conflict journalism. I, to anyone listening, and this is Gavin's serious voice, it's, it's highly irresponsible and reckless and dangerous. And, and you're an idiot if you do it, if you just go to a war zone with no training, no experience, no understanding, uh, you'll die. And that's me not being, I'm not being, you know, I'm not exaggerating. Yeah. So I wanted to understand how to get there safely. So I reached out to a bunch of people my age who were working in war zones to get their advice on how to do it. And one was Nicole Tung. And she, I, in my mind, I think she's arguably the greatest photojournalist of our generation. Like I, I think so highly of her. She kind of helped me out, kind of pointed me in the right direction of what to do. And part of that was getting certifications. So safety certifications to work in a war zone. But to get the certification, you needed experience. But to get the experience, you needed the certification. <laughs> figure it out. If you are made for this industry, you'll figure it out. So I went to the Philippines with the Canadian forces in 2013. Um, wow, okay. Yeah, as uh, embed for Sun Media to cover the typhoon recovery, uh, which was great. Yeah, that was my first foreign assignment. Learned a lot there, but it wasn't enough experience. So I still got denied hmm. um, entry into these, this representing body of conflict journalists. So I made the really stupid decision of going to North Korea in 2014. Which that was my street cred moment because they're like, all right, kid, Jesus. <laughs> like, yeah, we get it. We get it. Okay, yeah. you really want this. <laughs> um, so then I got trained after I got accepted after that, came back from North Korea, got trained up in DC. And then in 2015, I went to Iraq. To, and at the time, that was at the height of the ISIS offensive. Yeah. So I spent some time around Kirkuk in central Iraq. Wow. And you must have felt so accomplished and excited. Yeah, I... That feeling of accomplishment didn't really come until the, my uh, my second tour in 2016. Okay. But the the first one was very it was eye opening because then all of a sudden it, it it is an active war zone. Mm-hmm. Like there's there's things that you have to you know be very aware and there's there's realities of of how dangerous things are everywhere. Like and so it was yeah. quite a you know I I look back and while I wish I got better work it was one of those things like no I just I wanted to get the feel of it and, and live live through it totally um, and how long were you there that first time ten days okay so and and the advice that I get is typically don't spend longer than that early on right because the the mental strain is intense mm-hmm. um, so by kind of week, by day ten like I'm, I'm exhausted like yeah you're, like fear and terror do a lot to your mm. mental. Uh, well-being let alone like figuring out what f-stop and what my iso should be and you know how do i frame these photos right. it's like please i don't want to die like you know things uh things like you know we were dry i was driving in a truck an unarmored truck might i add down a road parallel to the front line and like front line was like 50 meters to my left wow and uh, the guy was like swerving in the road and then he's swerving craters and i asked him i was like oh what are what are those thinking that they'd be rockets and he's like, no, my friend. And he says, the ISIS, they bury the bomb under the road. And I was like, oh, they're landmines. He's like, yes, good. No problem. I drive very fast. And I'm like, I'm going to die here. <laughs> like, wow. So it's like, you got to yeah. have a, You got to have a little bit of a, uh, I don't know what the, not nihilistic, but like, if it happens, it happens. <laughs> like, you know, my right. flat jacket and helmet's not going to do shit if I, right. an IED goes out. So you got to have, but that takes a toll. So 
Yeah, of course. So the first, the first and what was I'm just trying to understand what was your like representation? Like, do people know you were a journalist? Did you? Were oh you yeah, with, yeah. Okay. Oh god, I had that plastered all over me. Yeah, like okay. press on the chest and press on my helmet. Did you have to represent Canada at all in that representation? No, they they okay. assume. Speaking of identity, they're like America. Hello, I'm like not America, Canada. They're like okay. <laughs> If there's one thing that I, and I'm, of course, all of these are anecdotes, but one thing I found is that it seems like Iraqis have a, a very, I don't know, they, they forgive quickly, especially mm. when there's another enemy yeah. that they're fighting. Um, and I met people that fought the Americans. And in 2016, I met a guy who uh, fought with Saddam Hussein in Kuwait, fought the Americans in Baghdad, and now him and his tank crew were fighting the Islamic State since so this guy has oh, wow. he was like 45 and he's known nothing but war for his entire life and crazy so it's that and because he was like yes I was, I was asking him this is fast forward to 2016 and i was like oh you fought in baghdad he's like yeah i fought the americans in baghdad he's like but and they point up because where we were at we were in mosul and he points up and there's drones and like the jets and the might of the american air force above us yeah and he's like america good yes i love america <laughs> like because obviously the jets are above him so yeah, it uh, I didn't feel threatened. But then when it comes to my own how I how I'm perceived, when yeah. I tan, I get pretty pretty olivey and brownish. Yeah, you probably fit in quite oh, nicely. They, they would always ask yeah. like, "Are you half Iraqi? Are you half Kurdish?" And I'm like, "No, I'm I'm Canadian." Like, yeah, you know. And and back back then, and I was. Do they have a concept of like our indigenous people? In a country like oh, Iraq, geez, I didn't even think about that. No. I, I feel like probably not. Probably not, because yeah. like the like Iraqis are indigenous to Iraq. Exactly, like they don't the, have that they, concept. But like, yeah, yeah, crazy. Yeah, so it's a uh, yeah. I was always mistaken, and it's a good thing to be mistaken in a war zone. Yes. It's like somewhat belonging. Another so. benefit of cultural ambiguity. Oh, I love it for yeah. us. <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. So crazy, and we don't have a ton of time left. So oh, I, I could talk about this for a long time. Oh, yeah. but and I might come back to it, but briefly like your your second run what was kind of your your takeaway for, from the whole Iraq experience what's something that you picked up on or that changed you from that a big deployment? thing was is that i realized i didn't know enough and mm. you know i covered the battle of mosul for cbc uh, for some of their pieces in in november and even then i realized i was like i'm so out of my league like you can report what's in front of you, but then there's a disingenuousness to yeah. not understanding the cu cultural, historical, religious, social context behind what was going on. And that's around then I decided to go back to university to get a second degree, international relations with a focus on Middle Eastern studies, because I, like, I was barely learning Arabic. Like I knew how to say I love peaches. <laughs> but besides that, it's like I, I need to, if I want to do the honor and of telling these people's stories, I have to be... I have to yeah. I have to do my diligence, yeah. and I saw a lot of reporting, especially about the war, especially about Islamic terrorism, was so simplified mm -hmm. and condensed. It did such a disservice to the conversations. Yes. It was either Islam is a religion of peace, or it's Islam is is horrible and it's the worst thing ever. It's neither. It's an ideology. It's a belief system. There are some very bad ideas in in the very small sects of islam like right. salafist jihadism is a very bad idea like it and how it's interpreted and that's not to say all salafists are you know jihadists there's yeah, some exactly. salafists that aren't yeah. so it's that that nuance and understanding yeah. historical religious context that i i feel comfortable having a conversation about political islam today rather than saying yeah, like that's amazing and i think that's important especially if it we're is. in a hypersensitive world that people are so quick to say like oh you mean you're you're islamophobic i've been called islamophobic so much
that's almost comparable to the race thing. Like, oh, you should feel this way or mm. oh, you should feel that way. And I had a similar like micro experience when I went to Russia. I think I told you this. Yeah. They were celebrating their victory day and we were all out on the street and then someone messaged me and they're like, I heard that Putin had this crazy like propaganda march today in Russia. Are you okay? I'm like, actually like people were celebrating. <laughs> yeah. They're celebrating their yeah. families defeating Nazi Germany and holding up their lineage proudly. And it was... And that actually coming back from that trip, I decided to take beginner Russian and Russian, oh, cool. Russian culture courses because I think that's what happens is you you fall in love with people or places or things that are different and misrepresented and you feel almost this duty like you you want to know more so that you can lift those people up and yeah, be and, part of the conversation and meaningfully. Absolutely. And, yeah. and not misrepresent people's lives and individuals and then saying mm -hmm. like you know, all Russians and all Iraqis exactly. and all like it, it becomes it becomes so like I said disingenuous because do you really know what all Iraqis think do you really know what all Russians think do you know Russia do you know like I can't say I know Iraq to the degree that I want to yeah you know, but I, and I've studied four years on it yeah and I've been there three times I'm still not at that point where I'd feel comfortable saying I'm an Iraq expert like I know more most more than most yeah. So, but it's those things of like, once again, like we need to let them speak for themselves when they can, you treat them as individuals, you know, not put them in boxes and saying, you know, this is how you should think. And this is how, you know, all of people who are like you think, and this is how all like it's exactly we're yeah. so intellectually lazy in the in yes. Western world today is that we just want to be told what to think. We want to be told who to be offended for. We want to be told what, what causes are the causes to, to fight for, regardless of the, the means and the methods and the, the outcomes. It's just, it, it's so intellectually lazy. Like yes, if, if that's if exactly you, the if word you for want it. to support a cause, know why you support it, which is why I don't like seeing kids at protests. Kids don't understand complex mm. social issues, right? Leave your kids at home, have yeah. those conversations. Yeah. Absolutely. Have those conversations. Let people develop their own thoughts of like, why do you support Black Lives Matter? Why do you support, you know, the war in Iraq? Why do you, why are you an anti-masker? Why are you pro-mask? Why are you this like, rather than being told what to think, create your own, like understand it and not don't listen to like alexjones.com, like consider the sources, consider like and do the deal. And it's not easy, no, especially in a, a COVID commitment. world. It's yes. commitment to understand these ideas to a degree that you can say, I think, and there's nothing wrong. And this is, if there's one thing. I can say to people, there's nothing wrong in saying, I don't know enough about that, that topic to have a, have a perspective yeah, on. Yeah. There's nothing, and that, that's so honest. And if someone yeah. said that to me, I'd be like, hey, what do you think about Middle Eastern policy? I would love if someone said, I don't really, I don't know enough about that topic to have a real idea. And most people wouldn't no. admit that. Uh, would. Well, uh, America <laughs> took the oil from Iraq and- uh, this ooh, voice. Ooh, uh, this is my. <laughs> this is my. Everything I hate about people sometimes, like oh, and uh, Iran, the nuclear deal was a great thing, and we just gotta protect Iraq, and America's gotta get out. And if you know, like, it's so much more complicated. Oh, like, yeah. if an Iraqi heard you talking about their country like that, they'd be like, absolutely, uh, exactly. Kind of like how if we have our issues with our indigenous and our history and stuff, like, how would we feel that if someone said? you know, such overarching, simplifying statements about Canada. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, Canada is the land of maple leaves and you kill Indians every day. Like, I'd be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, that, exactly. that, that's not, yeah. you know, we don't yeah. treat them great, you know, but yeah. you're really misconstruing, you know. Our, We're also two international relations majors talking. Yeah, so that's true. Oh, this God. is good. Take notes. People. Oh, God, let's talk about, you know, <laughs> defensive realism. And, oh yeah, God. that's another podcast. Joseph Nye and.
I do want to ask you about your time at Capitol Hill and mm, yeah. oh, what God. happened there yeah. and, and also kind of what you learned from that because speaking of yeah. misunderstandings and contentious Jeez. and 2020, yeah. like, yeah, right. yeah, so you spent time on the Chop Chaz area. Yeah, I spent a week yeah, tell us about that two quickly. weeks, two weeks down in Seattle, uh, yeah. this June and July, and I was there for the fall of Chop, got to know the leadership of Chop, and I went with a artist colleague of mine, Nicole Wolf. Great artist here in town in Calgary. Check her workout. She does a lot of murals. Yeah, um, she's great. So yeah, we we got to know Raz Simone, the the warlord of Chop, and turned out to be this like I don't know, like a warrior poet. Like he was really well well spoken, and everything I'd learned about him in the media proved to be like so blown out of proportion. And mm. it was on both sides too. Like it wasn't a a summer of love, as some people called it, or like a street party, like people died there. People literally got shot there. And right. It was it was squalor in some places. But at the same yeah. time too, like it wasn't this den of Antifa and, and, you know, terrorists. Like I met one dude who claimed to be part of Antifa. Right. And it was cringy. And I'm like, oh man, this is... <laughs> but at the same time too, is these these people... And I think it's really indicative of of a lot of quote unquote leaders, leaderless movements because Raz really didn't want to be the leader. Is that they're doomed to fail if they don't have clear set defined roles, just like Occupy, just like you know all these things. Right. These like who doesn't want to say like yeah, police brutality sucks. Everyone we talked to could agree on that. Even the police after it fell, yeah. we, we talked to the Seattle police. We talked like everyone was like yeah, what happened there sucks. That guy like who killed George Floyd is a piece of shit. Yeah, that yes, I'm outraged too. Mm -hmm. But when you have such like, it's easy to get a massive crowd, national, international crowds of people to rally around. Police brutality sucks. Who wouldn't argue that? But then, what do you do with that? Yeah. So this is where even within Chop, there was conversations about like we need to disband the police. And Raz was like, No, 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 we don't need to do that. Like, we need to reform. It needs to be about reform. It needs to be right. about meaningful change. Like, no, we need to defund, disband all this. And like, no, 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 no. And so then, all of a sudden, the narrative became strained. And then we saw in they had like speakers corner, but only like black people could say whatever they wanted, and pe people who weren't black. Like there was a pecking order mm. that was established and in speaking. Right. And so I was like, oh, that's that's kind of weird and interesting in a in conversations about equality and racial equality. And we had one one guy wear a, a chief's headdress, which is so egregious. If you understood what a chief's headdress right. is, Actually. it's not something you can just wear. Right. And he was like, I can wear this because I'm a true first first nations of America. I'm like, ooh, maybe you can't really say that. I enjoyed my time in CHOP. I found the leaders, all their hearts were in the right place. And I think that, mm. that was something that was a lot lost in the yeah. media clamor. Well, it kind of became this symbol for how everyone outside of the issue has thought they felt. Yeah. And, and it was used as a metaphor in that sense. Yeah. And, and people wanted to see exactly what, and this is when we talk about bubble, ideological bubbles were in, that if you were in the bubble that saw Black Lives Matter as a threat or as a terrorist group or something bad, that proved it. And if you wanted to view Black Lives Matter as this progressive for, force for change, that was a, that was right. proof of it too. Right. So once again, just like Islam and Iraq and all these things, it's it's neither. It's somewhere in the middle. And and this is why like I, I find so much love going to these places to mm -hmm. really come home and be like, actually, Iraq is more complicated. Actually, Chop was a lot more complicated. And that's yeah. all. I don't want to tell people what to think because I'm just one dude. Like that's totally. it. I think it's I think it's really cool though that. And I find similarities to your story in some ways too about 
you are not what people put you in a box for and you never will be. You are that dude. You are that individual and you're a complex mix of a lot of things and experiences. And I find that it's a gift that you're able to take that into where you're traveling to and see that there's more to the story and not put things in boxes. And I think that is a skill set that is so needed moving forward. And and I think it should be a part of a lot of our, our identities. We should be asking those questions and diving deep and not being intellectually lazy. And thank you for representing that. Yeah. I think that's so Thanks. inspiring. The only box I want to be in is one that says Gavin. That's it. Thanks for tuning in to this special episode kicking off season four of Anti-Culture. You can keep up with Gavin and explore some of his journalism pursuits at his website, gavinbrianjohn.com. That's Brian with a Y. You can also follow him on Instagram at gjohnjournalism. If you aren't already, please subscribe to the show so you don't miss out on any of the special guests we have coming down the pipe. Today, two episodes were released, so make sure you check out the next one on your queue after this. And we'll be back again before Christmas with one more episode on the 18th of December. You can also join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode. I'd love to hear from you. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Josiah Podcast and also subscribe to our new YouTube channel found on josiahpodcast.com. If you're able to, please also consider joining us financially for some extra goodies and insights at patreon.com slash josiahpodcast. This year, the tiers start at only $5 a month, and I have some really fun extras for you this year, so I'd love to have your support if you're able to give. This season is also being recorded and edited with the help of We Edit Podcasts. Their studio spaces in both Calgary and Saskatoon are perfect for your podcast goals. Check them out at weeditpodcasts.com. We'll see you on episode two, as well as next week for another exciting episode. All my best, Josiah.